Good morning. Welcome, church family. And for those of you on the web, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Amen? Well, there was joy in a tent, which is the house of the Lord as well, which we had yesterday. For those that you came, uh, we had a celebration for um, the retirement of Pastor Al and Deb. So those that you served, that did serve from the elders, thank you. I was appreciative of what you did um, to send off Al and Deb into their uh, next journey of what God's going to do in and through them. Um, Candidacy Weekend, our interim pastor that the elders are recommending will be uh, June 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And Pastor Adam Wolfgang will be coming, and he'll be um, teaching on Sunday. And there'll be an opportunity. We'll have a meal afterwards on that Sunday, the 5th. And you'll be able to see him, his wife, get to know them a little bit. And then we're going to vote, actually, on him on the 12th of of June. And um, hopefully we'll be able to move forward with him, Lord willing. Um, Announcements, check the bulletin. Get on the web and look on there as well. There's a lot of things in there. Um, but one of the things that we do need to point out is we do need a few more teachers for our summer VBS event. And if you're feeling that the Lord is moving in that direction, please contact um, the office or Pam Gardner directly, and we appreciate you uh, moving in that direction as well. So we have our ministry minute. If um, James would come forward. Uh, My name is James, and I'm one of the volunteers uh, with our student ministry on Wednesday night. Um, And we have a couple of announcements uh, coming this summer. Um, One of the things is we're going to continue meeting over the course of the summer, and we're going to be doing a series called The Chosen and doing a Bible study with that for all of our students in 7th through 12th grade. We especially want to invite our students um, that are currently in 6th grade that are going to be in 7th grade in the fall. We want um, all those students, especially, we're going to invite you and welcome you. Um, Not this coming Wednesday, but a week from Wednesday, we're going to start with that. And then for our uh, juniors and seniors that are going to be coming in the fall, um, we're going to be having a student leadership team um, that we're working on. And it's going to be students that we're going to train to lead small groups, lead Bible studies, um, lead worship. And so if we have any juniors and seniors who are interested in that, we're going to be doing some training in the summer with Aaron um, so we can teach you how to do that stuff. So um, if there is a, a summer schedule out on the foyer for anybody who's interested in knowing what the schedule is, and uh, that's what we got going on right now. Excited about that with our youth. That's an awesome um, thing to see. So if our offering would come forward, uh, we um, before we go to the offering, we want to lift up our missionary, Hedda Marie Dusan, who's down in the southern part of the country. And she's training pastors and lay staffed individuals for Latin America and the the Caribbean area. She's been serving there for years and years, and um, we want to lift her up as as she's serving God in that community. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for whom you are. We thank you for your love, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Father, we ask that you would just bless Hedda Marie and her, her workings. May uh, her hands and feet be a glory and honor to you, um, that she reaches people for you. Father, we pray for this offering that we give back today. What is yours? You know, the, the, the things that we have, the things that we sometimes just overlook and don't even think of, but they're yours. So as we freely give back today, may you be honored by it. May you duplicate and, and, and make it um, 
worthwhile for this community so we can reach out as well. We pray these things, Father, through your Son, Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading today. Our Father, we thank you that you are our living hope. You are the living God. In your great power, you have done great, great things that we celebrate together this weekend. And now as we turn to your word, make us by your spirit great learners, great listeners who are changed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So would you join me in giving thanks to the Lord for this great all-star band that was behind me. Aaron is still here. He's the main man, but isn't they great? Better than Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young back together again. No. Who said that? We'll talk later. Okay. All right. It is good to be with you. If you don't know me, I'm Brian. I'm a church consultant, a church health missionary. I'm all about helping churches thrive. And these days I get to work with a broad range of Bible-believing churches. It is my joy to do so. I live in Wisconsin Rapids with my wife Donna. And our here's the rest of our little tribe, Jesse, Jackie, Ari, and Elijah, are on the other side of the world in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates which means that I'm lonely. Isn't that pathetic? So come and talk to me at my little table across the foyer when the service is over. I'm going to be out there waiting for you to come and say hi. I have books I'd like to sell you, brochures I'd like to give you, and a place to sign up to get our newsletters and, and uh, blog posts right there at that little table. My real claim is that I'm an FOA. I'm a friend of Al. We have been friends for... I think over 21 years now, we were in a small group together of pastors that met once a month for a while, for like four or five hours at a time, got to know each other well. I preached here for the first time in 2003, and then I was your interim senior pastor from December of 2008 through January of 2010. So, and we have been friends and big fans of Washera Community Church ever since. So I've been hearing a lot lately about an amazing new church. It got off to a great start. It is famous for its gifted people and its gifted leaders. However, it does have some problems. I've heard that the people of this church are damaging the reputation of Christ. They're damaging the reputation of the gospel by filing lawsuits against each other. And that's not, that's not their biggest problem, actually. They're having serious issues with marriage and divorce. Uh, believers in this church are marrying unbelievers. Believers are divorcing their unbelieving spouses. They have more serious problems than that. They're not patient with each other. They're misusing their spiritual gifts that God has given them. They're thoughtless and sloppy in the way they do communion, if you can imagine that. 
Their sexual morality is far from being what it should be. They have big, serious problems, wouldn't you say? But their biggest problem, the one that the founder of the church wrote about first when he wrote a letter to them, was actually, wouldn't you like to know? Nod your heads. Yeah, we want to know. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Would you turn there, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 1771 in the Bibles that are in the chairs here. And there are handouts in the backs of the chairs in front of you. If you can't find one, if you go back to that little table back there by the tree, there's a pile of them back there as well. 1 Corinthians 1. So some of you perceptive folks have probably guessed that the church I'm describing is not exactly contemporary. It's actually the first century Christian church at Corinth in Greece. But it sounds so contemporary that when the great Chuck Swindoll preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, he said it could have been called Paul's first epistle to the Californians. And of course, everything in California comes our way, so it's all here, right? Again, when the man who founded this church, with all of those other things on his mind, when he wrote them a letter, one problem was the worst in his heart and mind. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. See if you can see what it is. Here we go. I appeal to you, brothers, and he meant the sisters too, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. What do you think their big problem was? Disunity, right? Disunity. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me, they tattled, that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, another name for Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. Disunity. Disunity over the pastor teachers who had come and gone from their church was their biggest problem. And Paul was disgusted. I mean, he was disgusted, wasn't he? I'm going to give them a break. You may give them a break with me when you see what I'm about to show you. I think it's kind of understandable in light of their unique church history. Their church was founded by the Apostle Paul. That would be one of the apostles with the capital letter A. It was a very small band of men, the founding fathers of Christianity, I like to call them. This is the guy after whom St. Paul's Cathedral was named. This is the guy after whom St. Paul, Minnesota was named. That guy, okay? He wrote about half of your New Testament. He had a deeper understanding of Christian theology, especially the, 
the theology of salvation, soteriology, than anybody on the planet. Nobody could preach the cross of Christ like this guy. Nobody, nobody. And some of these people in this church had actually been baptized by Paul. Be something to brag about, wouldn't it? Kind of reminds me today, and I hope I'm not embarrassing anybody too much, but Christians today are always telling me how they've, they've gone on cruises with superstar pastors. And oh, I got baptized by, you know, John MacArthur or somebody on this cruise. And you wouldn't have wanted to have gone on a cruise with the Apostle Paul. That's another sermon, but some of you get it. Okay. After Paul left, after Paul left, the pastor teacher at Corinth became this guy named Apollos. He was just kind of there. He was described as being a learned man, mighty in the scriptures, an eloquent man, and all of that was before he was even a Christian. This guy was an orator, a wordsmith, somebody you just love to listen to, the sermonator of his day. And for some reason that I cannot begin to explain, I have no idea why, but in my head, when I think of Apollos, I always think of the old Italian supermodel, Fabio. I have no idea if he looked like Fabio. Sorry, Apollos. All right, compounding the problem, <clears throat> at this time, the Apostle Peter was an itinerant preacher, and it kind of sounds like he had maybe been to Corinth. And some of these people had actually been baptized by Peter. And think with me for a minute. You know Peter. Think with me about what he would have been like as a preacher. Probably very bold, direct, in-your-face, forceful, passionate. And as a fisherman, he was the consummate storyteller, right? Because that's what fishermen do. They fish and they tell stories. So this guy could tell amazing stories without even exaggerating, like catching so many fish twice that they were sinking his boat. Take that, fisherman. Like catching a fish, opening its mouth, pulling out a coin, and paying his taxes with it. Sweet. Like walking on the water and he wasn't even ice fishing like miraculous fish fries when he was with Jesus in Wisconsin. I mean, amazing, amazing stories. And you better believe some people in Corinth really liked listening to Peter. Compounding the problem even more, it's possible, it sounds like, maybe some of these people about 20 years earlier had actually been to the Holy Land and heard Jesus himself. And so here's coffee time, fellowship time, at this church. And these guys are standing around. And one of them says, well, you know, I got baptized by the Apostle Paul. And the next guy says, well, I became a believer listening to the melodious oratory of Apollos. It was wonderful. And then the next guy says, well, I became an all-in believer in Jesus listening to Peter. And the next guy says, well, oh, I became a Christian listening to Christ. <laughs> Take that. So, to me, their disunity is a little understandable. 
But no, it wasn't to Paul. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. And here's where we do kind of a weird scripture reading. I need your help. It's on the screen and it's in your Bible. Paul asked three rhetorical questions. The implied answer to each of them is, of course not. So I'm going to ask you to muster up all the sarcasm that you have. And your mother has told me you have a lot of it. And answer, will you answer please three times, of course not, with all the sarcasm you have. Here we go. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Very good. Good job. Good job. Now look at 14. Look at 14. I am thankful. Now this is, this is weird. This is ironic. I'm actually thankful I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name as if you would have done that. Ah, uh, yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now, you'd think he would have been thrilled about baptizing people. Most of us preachers are. But with what they're doing with it, he's glad he didn't baptize anymore. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And at this point, he goes into a long rabbit trail. It's a good one, but it is a rabbit trail on the subject of, we just read, words of human wisdom. Words of human wisdom. He's talking about the value of human wisdom compared to the simple message of the cross. I don't think... He means wisdom as found in the Old Testament wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs, which is commended to us again and again. And I don't think he means wisdom that is opposed to God, like the woke wisdom of the world telling you things that are opposed to God's word. I think he means the wisdom that man can discover on his own from the Bible and everywhere else the word we use today would be knowledge, knowledge. The big issue there was that the backgrounds of the big three, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, were so different from each other. And so the, the Bible knowledge that they had was all true, but the Bible knowledge they had and the outside the Bible knowledge that they had, like fishing versus studying, was very, very different. So the hearers preferred one over the other. And this hasn't changed at all in all these years. A church today can have a succession of pastors, all of them very, very biblical, but very, very different. Some of you know exactly what I mean. You've seen it. So the church has one pastor who's a great evangelist. I mean, he's the Billy Graham of the area. He's just great at bringing people to faith in Jesus. And then he leaves and he's followed by somebody who's deep, deep, deep into Bible prophecy. And he teaches Daniel and Revelation to beat the band. And he leaves and then somebody comes who's 
one of those um, really great at teaching the Christian life and kind of a counselor from the pulpit, touchy-feely, you know, help you live the Christian life kind of guy. And then the next guy is something different again. And they're all biblical, but their areas of Bible knowledge are different, and their areas of knowledge from outside the Bible are very, very different. And so we're all tempted to choose one over the other, and it is foolish, and it is very, very harmful. In the process of talking about human wisdom, knowledge that we gain, at the end of chapter 2, he introduces some new terminology. He starts talking about spiritual people and unspiritual people. He uses the words a little differently than we do today. He uses the word a spiritual man or a spiritual person to mean a Christian who has grown up in Christ. We would say a mature Christian versus an immature Christian. Now next week, we're going to dig into the first few words of chapter 3 much deeper than we will this morning. But I do want to ask you to look at chapter 3, verse 1, and remember that his subject is still basically the disunity of the church at Corinth. He's talked about wisdom, but he's really talking about unity, disunity, disunity over the pastors and teachers who had come and gone from their church. Look at 3, verse 1. Brothers, and he meant the sisters too, I could not address you as spiritual. I'd like to, but I can't. But as worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And next week we'll see how long they had been believers. You are still worldly. What's his evidence? For since there is jealousy quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? He means people who have not been born again. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not, and again he means, acting like mere men? Now we cut them some slack. Again, to Paul, this stuff is inexcusable. He thinks it's pretty awful. But, however, angry or not, in chapter 3, Paul gives the Corinthians three illustrations. I just love them to help them understand the coming and the going of pastors. It's priceless material. It's something they really needed. It's something that has been very helpful to me and very helpful to many, many churches where I've been able to share this. When pastors come and go, for whatever reason, it's hard. It's weird. It seems strange, doesn't it? Especially if you've known them for a long time. It's like dad deserting the family. That's kind of what it feels like. Or divorce or something like that. And sometimes we look up to heaven and we say, you know, why did that have to happen? That's weird. 
We need to understand from God's vantage point what's going on down here. And I'll illustrate it, and I'll make this short, but i illustrate it like this. In May of 2003, I was going to preach my resignation sermon at Grafton, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee. Donna and I had been members there for 17 years, and uh, we got together. Before I preached this sermon in which I talked about the fact that we were moving away, uh, Donna and I identified some people who we thought might have kind of a difficult time with the transition. And so we got together with this couple and that couple and this guy and this gal and talked to them about it ahead of time. And uh, the day came, and the second service, I think, I preached this sermon, and I got done, and everybody filed out and hit the coffee, you know, and, and they were fine. And there in, like, the second row was one gal that we knew pretty well whom we had not talked to ahead of time. We had not guessed that this would be an issue for her, but she sat there just like a stone, just like a, like a statue, and we didn't even know what to say to her at that point. These things are hard. What's going on? What is God up to? Paul's three illustrations really help us. We're actually going to begin with the third illustration. In the third illustration, verses 16 and 17, Washera Community Church is God's temple. Washera Community Church is God's temple. Look at 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And he's not talking to individual Christians here like he does elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. He's talking to the church as God's temple. And he's not saying a church is a building. It's just an illustration. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, or your Bible might say, holy. And you are that temple. Now, he's really only making one big point here. And the big point is that churches are holy. Holy, because they belong to God. Churches of every size, they belong to God. They are holy. I am going to give you three implications quickly. Here they are. First of all, the most important qualification for your new interim pastor, your new long-term pastor, is that these guys fear God, that they understand that God is holy and God's church is holy and belongs to God. Amen? Got that? Right? That was easy. Second, the temple is more important than any individual priest. And again, the temple thing is just an illustration, but if you think about the temple in Jerusalem, stood there for hundreds of years, the priests came and went, they came and went, they came and went, they came and went, and the temple remained and kept on going. That means for us that no individual preacher is so sacred that the church should be compromised to accommodate him. And this happens today all the time. No individual preacher is so sacred that the church should be compromised 
to accommodate him. Well, we got to keep him here. No, you don't. No, you don't. Third implication. God will deal with anybody who destroys a church. Did you see that in the text? Boy, you wreck God's temple, God will deal with you. So that's the first illustration. Excuse me, that's the third illustration that I'm treating as the first. Now we're going to go back to the first illustration. In the first one that he gives was share a community church's God's field. It's God's field. And we're going to read verses 5 through 9. I want to ask you to follow along really carefully and see how much you can see because there's so much in this little paragraph. See if you can see more than your wife, more than your kids. Kids, see if you can see more than your parents. Here we go. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and we have to stop there at the comma. Okay, did you notice? Did you notice? God is the only owner of every church, every field, the only one, right? The only one. The fighting that we do where we're telling each other, you know, it's my church, I'm not going to let you wreck it. Oh, yeah, it's my church. I mean, when we do stuff like that, we are fraudulent Posers, squatters, pretenders. It was the blood of Christ that paid for the church. God is the only owner. God does not give stock options even though you've worked in your church for 40 years. It's all His. It's all His. Did you notice? God moves pastor teachers on and off the field. On and off. The words aren't in here, but he does it sovereignly. That is, like a king, he does not consult consultants like me and get our permission. He just does it. He does it providentially. Providence means God's benevolent meddling in our lives for our good and his glory. And when God moves pastors on and off the field, he uses many circumstances which are not circumstantial, they're not happenstantial, they're providential, they're arranged by God. Did you notice from these great, this great passage we just read that these pastor teachers don't necessarily have to like each other, but they are fellow workers. They are fellow workers in God's work. They're not competitors. They have specialized tasks. Some of them are waterers, some of them are fertilizers, some of them are planters, some of I'm mixing up the order. Some of them are cultivators, detasslers, harvesters. They come and go. How long should they stay? John Herman, who worked for the Evangelical Free Church for many years, wrote a great little article called Right Length Pastorates. 
And in his article, he argued not for long pastorates like Pastor Al's or short pastorates like the two-year ones the Methodists used to do. He argues for right-length pastorates, which might be short, they might be long, they might be somewhere in between. You come until you fulfill the task that God brought you there to do. Great article. Great truth. Did you notice from this passage that God is the only one who makes any church grow ever? God is the only one who does it. It's Him. Did you notice from this passage that He says, um, we're, not, we're not anything. We're not anything. We're nobodies compared to God. In fact, in His allegory, in his allegory, pastors and teachers, if we're honest, farm workers, they come do a task, they leave, they do a task, they leave, they do a task, they leave. What does that make them? What do we call these people? Don't say illegal. <laughs> migrant workers, right? We're migrant workers. Migrant workers are high status people, right? Mm, no. Between here and Plainfield is a potato farm where there is a long row of, I call them manufactured homes, and you call them trailers for migrant workers. And that's what we are. Our great honor is that we get to work with God. Every Christian gets to work with God. Every Christian gets to sow the seed of the gospel and see people come to believe. Every Christian gets to work with God and the and the claim to fame of the full-time pastor teachers, just that we get to do it more than you do, that's all. We get to do it full-time, and you don't. But either way, it's a thrill to work with God. And then from the passage, it says that God will reward us perfectly. God will give us exactly what we need. Churches don't reward pastors perfectly, but God will. And there's more on that subject in chapter 4. If you want to read about it at home, it says don't try to judge this pastor is doing a lot and this one isn't doing much because when God judges at the judgment seat of Christ, he will even take the motivations of our hearts into consideration, things that we humans can't see. So I am not going to say that you can't be sad about Pastor Al retiring. It's fine to be sad. It's good to be sad. But from 30,000 feet, God's a lot higher than that. Really, from God's vantage point, everything is just fine. One worker has been moved off the field. Another will come temporarily, and then another will come for a longer period of time. And that means two implications, dividing up over our human leaders is a mark of spiritual immaturity. It's baby stuff. It's baby stuff to argue about which pastor is the best. The best for what? <laughs> the best for what? You know, the best for where? The best for when? It is baby stuff to take pride in your pastor and boast. Here's the positive side of this truth. If we take this truth and turn it Turn it over so we look at the positive side. The healthiest churches, the healthiest churches 
are disciple-making ministries which are active, effective bodies of Christ in their own community. They are not dependent upon superstar pastors for their success. Their pastors come and they go, and the church just keeps right on doing what it's been doing. And I'm not talking about dead churches, stuck churches that are doing nothing. Their pastors come and go out of frustration because they can't lead, and they just keep going and don't ever change anything. I don't mean that. I mean churches that are effective at making disciples. So here's a good goal. Here's a great goal. Let's become, and I am not implying that you are not, but let's become a healthier, happier, holier, united, disciple-making church before we call our next long-term senior pastor. Let's use the interim time for a great time. And here's another implication. Churches belong to God who gives them We keep seeing that. Churches belong to God, right? Who gives them a succession of servant leaders who help them grow into what he wants them to be. My question is, if you have trusted God with your life, if you have trusted God with your soul, if you have trusted God with your death, can you not entrust him with your church? Of course you can. Of course you can. Some of you might have some questions. Just a couple. But can I trust my leaders? Can I trust my church's leaders? And the answer is yes. Trust God by trusting your leaders. They're not perfect, but God can guide them. He has before, and he'll do it again. Another question you might have, do we have to, do we have to suffer during the interim time? Are we going to shrink as a church during the interim time? And the answer is no, you don't have to suffer. A friend of mine just wrote a book called Soaring Between Pastors, Soaring Between Pastors. You can just get better in all kinds of ways during this time. Here's another question. Can we get a new pastor who's just like Al? (laughs) The answer is, no, you can't. And Al would say, no, you don't want to. (laughs) No, that wouldn't be what you need. God has a plan, and he has somebody different in mind for you. God has a plan. He has the interim pastor you need. He has the long-term pastor you need. He's getting them ready right now as we speak. Two prayers. Don't pray them with me until you take a good look. Band, you can come back anytime. Dear God, please make our church a healthier, happier, holier, united, disciple-making church for your glory. Can you pray that with me? Would you pray that with me out loud? Dear God, please make our church a healthier, happier, holier, united, disciple-making church for your glory. And then the second prayer, look at it before you pray it. Dear God, please bring us the pastor whom you want to bring us, who will help us become the church that you 
want us to be. Could you pray that with me? Dear God, please bring us the pastor whom you want to bring us, who will help us become the church that you want us to be. Will you stand with me? And we'll sing about it.